I'm Eric Sorensen, and you're listening to The West Block. More than 100,000 federal workers remain on strike across the country. The union is looking for wage increases that keep up with inflation and more say on working from home, which many Canadians are watching closely. The strike is already causing disruptions for Canadians, longer wait times at call centres and delays in processing your tax return and immigration applications. And getting a new passport could take a long time. For more now on the impact of the strike and what to expect, we're joined by Karina Gould, Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. Ms. Gould, thank you for joining us. First, let me ask you about the impacts. You're responsible for passports. We'll start there. The government just got through this terrible, long backlog last year. And now look where we are again. How many people are being affected by the strike in terms of passports? Well, thanks, um, Eric. And, and you're right. Um, you know, we were in a really good place with passports uh, leading into the general strike that uh, started on Wednesday. Unfortunately, by law, uh, passport services are not considered to be essential. So that means uh, anyone who is applying for a new passport or um, to renew a passport, uh, unless it is in a very uh, set um, prescribed set of circumstances, uh, will not be able to apply for a passport while uh, the strike is ongoing. How many people are being affected then? At what rate are, are people finding they can't get it done? Yeah, so I mean, it, there's there's only a very small set of circumstances that are considered to be essential when it comes to passports by law um, and as negotiated with the union. Uh, so unless um, you are traveling for work and you're economically dependent uh, on that travel and require a passport for that, or you need to seek medical services abroad, or you have a family member who is uh, critically ill or who has passed away abroad and you need a passport to travel for those reasons, or uh, on compassionate grounds, um, you cannot apply for a passport while the strike is ongoing. So um, typically we, on a normal day, we would receive about 20,000, uh, 25,000 passport applications across the country. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, on Wednesday, for the first day of the strike, uh, Passport Canada was only able to uh, process 500 applications because those were 500 that were considered to be urgent or essential. So, so most people then are not going to get their passports processed right now. And are you just saying to them, don't even try? So, I mean, my advice uh, certainly is, um, you know, not to apply at this point in time, because even though Service Canada can receive the application, they can't open it, they can't process it. Um, so if it's sent by mail, it will just have to wait at the processing center. You can drop it off at a Service Canada location or a passport office, but they can't open it. And um, we've seen, you know, most people don't want to do that because they would have to leave their primary identity documents in that application. Um, and of course, we don't know how long the strike is going to go on. And the essential workers that are at Service Canada's and passport offices are not allowed to open those applications. So if you dropped it off and then needed those primary documents, they wouldn't be able to give them back to you until after the job action is complete. So my best advice um, to Canadians is not to make that application um, right now uh, because it, it just simply won't be processed. You mentioned the uh, service centres across the country. There are 300 of them. I guess they're remaining open, but like, can people count on being able to get their CPP and social insurance issues addressed their uh, employment insurance applications in, like what are you doing to assure that, uh, that those things uh, can be addressed? 
Yeah, so this is a really good um, point. So uh, CPP, Guaranteed Income Supplement, uh, Old Age Security, the social insurance numbers, employment insurance, these are all considered to be essential services uh, under the law and as negotiated with the union. Uh, so all 338 Service Canada and uh, 338 Service Canada locations continue to remain open. Uh, however, they are at reduced capacity. So even though uh, they are considered essential, there is a reduced capacity, as you mentioned in the outset. Uh, call centers continue to be open, but their capacity is reduced. The priority for Service Canada is to make sure that anyone who is receiving payments continues to receive payments uh, for new applications that they get into payment uh, as soon as possible. Where people may see delays is if there are um, you know, questions around um, the payments that they're receiving or if there's adjustments that need to be made, those are going to take more time because the because of the reduced staff capacity, because of the job action, the priority really is ensuring to Canadians get paid uh, for the, um, the for the uh, pensions or the employment insurance uh, that they're entitled to. But it may and likely will take longer to process any adjustments that are required. We, we keep hearing of other impacts like no heat and water at some military bases or 1,500 students in First Nations communities in federally run schools are out of class now. Like, What is the contingency as these problems mount? Well, I mean, look, uh, we have 155,000 uh, federal public servants that are on strike um, and, you know, we we. They they are you know exercising their right to strike. Obviously, as a as a government, we respect collective bar bargaining and we respect the right to strike. However, you know we have to be honest with Canadians uh, that this will obviously have an impact uh, on their day to day lives, which we are seeing already um, in the services that we talked about. Um, and you know we certainly hope that um, you know the union will continue to remain at the table bargaining in good faith so that we can get an agreement at the negotiating table and hopefully end this job action as soon as possible. You know, historically, the Public Service Alliance of Canada has touted the fact that it has paved the way for collective bargaining back in the 1960s for paid maternity leave some years after that. And now it's hoping for a breakthrough on working from home. Uh, it wants to, uh, telework to be part of the collective agreement. Why is that an issue for the government? Why isn't that something you can just say, okay, because they are already working from home a certain amount of the time? Well, not everyone uh, in PSAC is working from home. I mean, there are a lot of frontline workers uh, that uh, that are part of the PSAC bargaining uh, groups. So, for example, the people that work uh, in Service Canada centres or the people that, you know, are um, reviewers for grain exports or uh, who work at airports. Like there's there's a lot of people who who are who are not front, um, who are not able to work from home. Uh, we feel very strongly that it's important for the government to be able to uh, set the workplace conditions um, and where that work happens so that we can continue to main, maintain effective services for Canadians. Um, and I think that's something that Canadians broadly can understand. Um, currently, uh, the Treasury Board guidelines for workers that are able to do some of their work from home, um, they're able to do that two to three days 
a week and then two to three days in the office. Um, that's a guideline that is already in place with Treasury Board. Um, and, you know, we want to ensure that we're creating a work environment that is both good for, you know, our very qualified and talented uh, public service, but also is, you know, able to uh, be there and respond to the needs of Canadians. Your government has employed back-to-work legislation in the past. Is that something that you rule out using now? We are very committed to getting an agreement at the bargaining table. Uh, you know, we have been at the bargaining table for over for about a year now. Um, and the last two weeks, uh, my colleague, the president of the Treasury Board, Mona Fortier, has been uh, leading the work in mediation. There's a public interest commission that has said there's a fair deal on the table for uh, for for the PSAC union. Uh, we want to get a deal at the table. That's what we're looking for. Do you have a timetable? Like, are you looking ahead and saying, well, within a week or so, are there, is there some sort of timetable that says at some point we have to respond with something more than saying, I hope we get a deal at the table? Um, well, you know what, Eric? We respect the right to collective bargaining. We respect the right to strike. We respect workers, both public and um, private across this country. And we believe that the best deals are made at the bargaining table. And so we're going to continue to put our energy into that. And uh, certainly I'm very hopeful that the union also wants the same thing and that we can uh, get this uh, agreement in place so that uh, the impact on Canadians is minimized. Because as you mentioned, uh, the impact on Canadians with three days uh, of job action so far um, is already significant and we want to minimize that as much as possible. All right, well, uh, good luck to both sides. Uh, Minister Gould, thank you. New information from the Pentagon highly classified intelligence leak is raising concerns about Canada's military spending. The Washington Post says it obtained a document that highlights Canada's defense shortfalls. And it says Prime Minister Justin Trudeau privately told NATO officials that Canada will never meet NATO's defense spending target of 2% of GDP. When asked about it, Trudeau didn't exactly clarify what he'd said. I continued to say and will always say that Canada is a reliable partner to NATO, a reliable partner around the world, and uh, with our military investments, with the support we give to Canadians, we will uh, continue to be doing that. Of the 31 NATO member states, only eight are currently meeting the 2% spending target. Canada ranks fifth from the bottom in defense spending at 1.3%, and of the six biggest economies in the alliance, Canada trails the other five. This latest report comes just days after an open letter from former top defense and national security officials urged the government to take this issue more seriously. Among the people who signed were retired Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie, former commander of the Canadian Army, and a former Liberal MP, and retired General Raymond Henault, former Chief of Defense Staff, and the former Chairman of the NATO Military Committee. And they join us now. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Let me start with you. First of all, General Leslie, the PM allegedly said we'd never meet that 2% target. You were inside the government. Does that sound like something he would have said? It's possible. I can't vouch for the veracity of the leak, of course. But all you have to do is look at the results in terms of the Canadian forces' readiness, which is woeful, by the way. And you see that the current government has not spent what is required to get our armed forces with the equipment, the training, and the number of people that they need to meet commitments, especially with the Russian bear rampaging and causing slaughter in Ukraine. 
And, and General Leslie, do you think then that this government does not aspire to meet that NATO target? I would say that's almost a certainty, but you noticed my use of the term almost. It's not only the question of meeting 2%. Right now, we're at around 1.27, as you mentioned. Uh, it's also the question of actually getting money into D&D and then spending it in either people, training, infrastructure, or equipment. And there's a huge bow wave of stuff, money that was promised back in 2017 when Strong, Secure, Engaged, the liberal defense policy came out. And so far, there's a $15 billion clump of money that was promised in 2017 to implement the liberal vision, which has not appeared in DND coffers. That's the crisis. Uh, General, I know you were a, can a Canadian representative on NATO. Is it embarrassing, this sort of lack of spending from Canada year after year? Well, Eric, uh, yes, I had the privilege of uh, being the chairman of the NATO Military Committee from 2005 to 2008. Of course, I was representing all the uh, NATO chiefs of defense, providing security advice uh, to the and defense advice uh, to the North Atlantic Council. And for that very reason, uh, attended all of the uh, meetings of the North Atlantic Council, including uh, chairing my, my own uh, of the chiefs of defense and their representatives. In all of those meetings, uh, it was always reinforced, especially at the uh, North Atlantic Council level and head of state level, that 2% was a very important target for all uh, NATO nations to, to meet. Uh, th that is a very important factor because uh, in, in terms of, uh, of NATO and its collective defense uh, mantra, if you like, uh, 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 an attack against one is an attack against all, it means that all of the nations have to step up to the plate, so to speak. And the, the only way that they can do that is share the burden that, uh, that comes with, with belonging to NATO. And for Canada, if you are unable to meet that 2% target, although you may be doing a number of great things, as they are with air policing, uh, with uh, maritime patrols, and, of course, our deployments to uh, Latvia and uh, support to Ukraine through Poland and others, uh, you can't necessarily satisfy all of those requirements. And as Andy has mentioned, uh, it's a very important factor. And uh, without the capability and the equipment that's required to do all of that, uh, we fall short. And has that done something to the Canadian military? Are we just not ready to do what we would be expected to do? Well, the Canadian military, of course, is uh, going through uh, a challenging period uh, with a shortfall of people and uh, also looking at defense expenditures and investments, which have been a long time coming. Uh, they, they are uh, suffering a, a, a capability uh, shortfall, as we all know. And, and uh, even in the most recent uh, terms, uh, the increase to the size of our deployment into Latvia should have been done by now and has not happened. Uh, that, again, of course, is a reflection of the capability and deployability that the Canadian Forces has and uh, should have, uh, and the fact that with all of the, the other challenges that come, and we've heard many of those over the last uh, several months, uh, they can't necessarily satisfy all of those requirements, have to prioritize, and of course that's that's making life very difficult for uh, for our aspect or our terms of, uh, of burden sharing that I mentioned earlier. General Leslie, uh, the letter that was written uh, by several dozen top military and political figures, uh, you both gentlemen uh, signed that letter stating that Ottawa needs to take defense more seriously. Now is the time, said the letter. Why is now the time? Why does it matter? 
Well, Russia is engaged in its, in its awful, tragic attack on Ukraine, and that is by no means finished. And all our thoughts and prayers, of course, are with the Ukraine people. But let's not face it, or, you know, let's not uh, duck around it. Russia could still somehow win. And others are going to emulate Russia's example, should it look like they're going to gain some sort of advantage. And let's talk about being a strong and reliable ally. Well, people have said to me recently, well, Canada really doesn't send troops overseas to do armed peacekeeping. We do peacekeeping in general. That's not true. And by the way, even though we invented the idea of peacekeeping, right now we have between 35 and 50 people deployed on international peacekeeping missions. That's half a school bus out of a population of 38 billion. We have less than a thousand troops in Latvia, whereas we were indicated to provide a brigade. The brigade is around 3,500 to 4,000, which we used to have the equivalent in Afghanistan. And we used to have that amount of troops in Europe when we had fewer people and less money. And if it's a question of money, once again, let's just do some math. Our economy is $2,000 billion, $2 trillion a year. What the armed forces is asking for is not unreasonable in terms of several billion more per year to get the equipment and people that they need. But once again, the money that was promised to them by this government is not getting all of it into the Canadian forces to produce capability. It's getting wrapped up in layers of bureaucracy and stalling, quite frankly. The NATO Secretary General says that all NATO countries want Ukraine now in NATO. Uh, this position was not asserted before the war. What's changed, and do you think this will happen? Well, during my time as uh, Chief of Defense, we were we were very involved with uh, with Ukraine, helping them to professionalize their army and uh, Navy and Air Force. And while I was at NATO, even more so, we were uh, very intimately involved with uh, helping them to uh, become a, a reliable ally of NATO, ultimately. They've been a member of the Membership Action Plan for quite some time, but of course it was uh, slowed down in terms of uh, uh, political issues, uh, governments changing, and so on, so Ukraine has been part of our uh, part of our mantra for for quite some time now. And if we look at uh, at China, and again, I've been involved with China as well. What they're doing in the South China Sea, uh, what we have seen in terms of uh, their rhetoric regarding Taiwan, and of course their closening of relationships with uh, with Russia. All of that lends to uh, a change in the geostrategic strategic environment uh, that makes it very important for us as well to pay attention uh, to make uh, the, the kind of investments that are absolutely essential from a Canadian government point of view for us to satisfy our international obligations, and that is to contributing to international peace and security. So those changes are, to me, uh, some of the more profound changes uh, that have uh, that have made things that much different since the time, for for example, when I was at on the minister's advisory panel, uh, developing uh, strong, secure, and engaged, uh, putting out that twenty-year horizon, if you like, for defense investments and defense policy, uh, and uh, again, that has fallen short, and and that's why, uh, in in my view, this letter is so important because those who have signed it all agree that. Uh, the, the strategic environment, is, especially the geostrategic environment, is one which uh, requires us to now increase the frequency and also the levels of our investment and to reestablish that capability, deployability and, uh, and reliability that, uh, that uh, General Leslie has mentioned as well.
And General Leslie, last question to you. We only have a few seconds. Uh, do you think Canadians' views are changing? They've accepted this shortfall with NATO for years and years. Do you think Canadians' views are changing on that? I do. This is the most dangerous time since the end of the Second World War. If there's any severe miscalculations, there could be World War III. The time to provide deterrence forces to convince the bad guy that we have the strength to withstand him, so don't attack, is now. And our NATO allies, and we live in this web of interconnectivity in terms of trade and social development, but also defense. And our allies are saying, Canada, step up to the plate. And the last thing you want to do is go it alone. I'm not suggesting that will happen, but be careful. Your armed forces need help, and they need the attention of Canada right now. Uh, General Leslie, General Inno, uh, many thanks for your time today. Thank you, Eric. Now for one last thing. The Prime Minister marked his 10th anniversary as Liberal leader this month, and in a couple of weeks, Justin Trudeau will reach an electoral milestone, seven and a half years as Prime Minister. Over time, Trudeau's approval numbers have fallen. Is it mounting scandals? Is it the economy? Or is it simply time? Something every modern prime minister discovers that at a certain point, you wear out your welcome. Justin Trudeau has won three consecutive elections. In the last 100 years, no prime minister has won four straight. And since 1950, there have been 12 prime ministers in this country. Half of them retired or lost well before seven and a half years in office. Of those who made it that far, in the very next election, Saint Laurent lost, Pierre Trudeau lost, Mulroney retired, Chrétien retired, Harper lost. Not one could win again after they'd been in office for as long as Trudeau has now been prime minister. To many, Trudeau looks like he wants to test the Canadian public one more time. But if he does, he'll also be testing history. That's our show for today. I'm Eric Sorensen.